Over the last few weeks, particularly the weeks prior to Thanksgiving, my 10-year-old daughter, Savannah, kept asking me if there were any Christmas specials on anytime soon. So I kept checking the, the TV guide and things of that sort, and then I, I reminded her that Christmas specials legally can only start until after Thanksgiving, you know, because legally Christmas music should only start after Thanksgiving as well. Can I get a witness on that? So, right? All right. Started a Facebook movement right there, okay? So there we go. Um, you know, and I get it. She loves Christmas specials. I, you know, as a kid growing up, I love Christmas specials as well. I'm sure you have some that you enjoy. Here's a couple of my favorite, Grinch That Stole Christmas, classic work. Frosty the Snowman, entirely true. Um, a Charlie Brown Christmas, or here's my new favorite, Prep and Landing. That's my new one, that's my new favorite. Well, we finally got to look at the TV guide and realized that last Monday night, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was on. And so I said, hey, Savannah, finally, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is on. And so I turned it on for her, and something odd happened in that moment. She was standing behind the couch, and for a moment I thought, she's like mesmerized. I mean, with the stunning claymation, you know. <laughs> and and she's, she's standing there, and all of a sudden she kind of snaps out of it. She looks at me, and she says, rather embarrassingly, um, Dad, I don't, I don't want to watch this. And I said, what? Why don't you want to watch it? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, I've seen it before. And she goes, I don't know. I just, I just think I'm, I'm too old for this. And so she walked away. So I watched Rudolph all by myself. <laughs> no, what I did, I did not watch Rudolph. But here, here's the point. It, it, I felt kind of sad as she walked away, like, am I really that old that nobody wants to watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer anymore in my house? I mean, is, is the next season really, like, grandkids? What? Right? I was thinking about her experience that was going through her head that, you know, it's just a familiar show. She's seen it before. She knows the plot line, et cetera, et cetera. She's kind of grown out of it. And you know, if we're honest, I think there's probably a number of us that that's how you feel about Christmas Advent series in churches. You come in and you know the storyline of Christmas, you know what happens, you know Jesus was born in a manger, you know about the shepherds. And so as a result, you, perhaps you come into this time of year a little bored, a little overly familiarized with the Christmas story. A couple years ago, I was... Um, about 10 years ago, actually, was going to a, a benchmark visit at a church during the month of December. And when I walked into the church, about three or four people, as they talked about the sermon that was going to be on that Sunday, they apologized because it was a Christmas sermon. So, well, today isn't going to be a very normal sermon. It's kind of like it's Christmas, and you know, we kind of all got to just kind of make our way through it. And the more I've thought about this, the more I think that when it comes to the content of Advent, there's a number of us that look at this time of year through a particular lens that maybe we need to adjust a little bit. Over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through the meaning of these words, pleased to dwell. And what I want to try and do is help you understand the significance of the incarnation of Jesus. Like, why does this really matter? And so, this week, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus was born, and I want to show you why that's important. Next week, that he was tempted. Third week, 
that he died in the Christmas Eve service, that he's coming back. So we're going to walk through Galatians chapter 4, which arguably is the most dense New Testament text on the significance of the incarnation of Jesus. And what we're going to see here is the incarnation of Jesus is the intersection between my need and Christ's rescue. I have a need, Jesus rescues people, and those two things converge in the incarnation of Jesus. So, I know that you know that Jesus was born. You may factually know that he was born. I wanna help you understand and fully appreciate what happened in and through the birth of Jesus. I want to help you answer this question today. Why does the birth of Jesus matter? Let me suggest to you three reasons. Here's the first one. It matters because Jesus entered my world. In Galatians chapter four and verse four, we find that in the midst of this season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we have theological and biblical and personal significances in the fact that Jesus' entrance in the world is more than just a historical fact that it's loaded with meaning. Let me, let me show you what it means that he entered my world. It says, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's start with born of woman. It's a pretty simple statement. Born of woman. But that simple statement connects Jesus, the son of God, the infinite son of God, the one who was never created, always was, always will be, that Jesus was born of woman. That statement is a wonderful succinct summary of what it means to be human. Because every single one of us, regardless of where you born, where you were born, regardless of what um, time and era you were born into, regardless how many other children were born into your family, all of us share a common reality as human beings, and that is that we all have mothers. We were all born of women. All of us share the simple fact we have a woman, mom. Somebody birthed you. You know, it's interesting to me, that used to be really important to football players. I don't know what happened. Jermaine, maybe you can help me understand this, but I remember back in the day, back when I was watching TV, watching uh, football, that when a, a guy made a touchdown, that instead of having some fancy dance that he did in the end zone, you know, doing the sprinkler or some kind of crazy handshake or something like that, and everyone's got their new thing, that instead they'd run into the camera, and what would they say? Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. I don't know what happened to Mom, but she got replaced with a sprinkler move or something, right? <laughs> when you saw that football player say, Hi, Mom, you resonated with it because you're like, if I was that guy, I'd probably say the same thing because I got a mom and I want my mom to be proud of me because being a part of the human race means that we all share this common connection with the fact that we all have a mother. Born of woman. Here is the second member of the triune Godhead who becomes a baby. He doesn't become a man immediately, he has to grow. And think of all the ways that God could have worked out his redemptive plan. He, he, could have, he could have sent a fully grown human being. He could have sent a warrior. He could have sent some great and powerful ruler. But no, Jesus, the Son of God, is born. And with that 
comes the experience of our humanity. Just think of this. In all of his might and all of his glory, we also have the Son of God who is a weak and dependent child, who was hungry, who grew tired, who shed tears, who experienced temptation. We'll talk about that next week. We have this God-man whose feet get dusty, who needs to sleep, whose heart is disappointed and even upset at the things that he saw or experienced. So the fact that Jesus entered our world means that he became like us, that he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to live in a broken world. The, the infinite Son of God entered your world. The text also says that he was born under the law. This is more than just a, a statement of fact. When we talks about the law, he's referring in general to the Mosaic law, which had this, this overarching requirement, this overarching guide for how you were to live for every Jewish person. So the law reflected the holiness and the character of God, so the law was something good in and of itself, and it was helpful in the sense that it showed people what God was like, but the challenge was is no one could live up to the law. Take your Bible, look at Galatians 3, in verse 23, just a few verses earlier, Paul actually describes the law and living under the law as though we are enslaved to it and as though it's a prison. So although it's good for us as human beings, it's like a, a prison. Look what he says. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be Revealed. He goes on in verse 24, he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So for those of us who are broken, sinful human beings, the law becomes this continual reminder that we can never measure up to absolute perfection. And that's what the law's purpose was. It was to point us to something more, namely to Christ. Now, when it says that he was born of woman and born under the law, it means that Jesus enters into this rule-dominated environment. Even though he's Lord of all, even though he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, even though he's the Son of God, he still enters into this law-oriented environment so that he not only becomes a child, but he also becomes obedient to the law. He circumcised the eighth day, he reads the Torah, he attends worship at the synagogue, while at the same time fulfilling all the commands of the law and perfectly obeying it as no one ever could. And here is Jesus, who's Lord of all, and yet he submits himself to this law. And in many respects, he lives under this law in the same way that a child submits to his guardians and to his masters. So he's born of woman, he's born under the law, and what we find here that Paul is doing is emphasizing that Jesus enters into our humanity. He embraces our weakness and our own limitations, 
and he embraces the submission that is required to the Mosaic law. So notice here, friends, that Jesus doesn't rescue people. He didn't rescue you if you're a follower of Jesus by simply telling you what to do or pointing you towards where you ought to go. No, instead, Jesus came to you, entered into the mess of our humanity, embraced the brokenness of where we live, embraced all of the heavy burdens of the law that characterize our existence. Rather than just standing at a distance and telling people what to do, Jesus went to where we were and he let us out. Which, by the way, becomes a phenomenal model for ministry. In regards to Brookside, it means that we have people who are living in Brookside. It means that we go to the neighborhood. We don't just say, come to us and we'll help you. We go to them. It means that in your small group, if you have a hurting person, that you don't say, just come to me. You go to them in discipleship. You go to the person in need. You meet them where they are. That the model of ministry is not just standing at a distance and saying, well, here's all the content. Whenever you're ready, I'm here. Instead, you go to people and you meet them in their brokenness. And by the way, and when that gets costly and when that gets painful and when you feel like, man, this is messy, just remind yourself, it is not even comparable to the mess that Jesus embraced when he came and rescued you. And by the way, this all didn't happen by accident. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So fullness of time means that there is no accident, no coincidence about the moment when Jesus enters the world, that God is behind it all, orchestrating all of the events, both the political events, the social events, all things, and God's orchestrating all events even today, the events of your life, the events of the world, the events of our country, the events of our state, the, the, the events in your family this week. All of those things are part of God's providential plan, and God loves to intervene in our lives at just the right time. Think of it, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you came to faith in Christ, all of those events where you understood the gospel, heard the gospel, and you came to believe the gospel, all of those things were divinely designed by God who was wooing you to himself. He not only went to meet you, in the humanity of Jesus, but he orchestrated all of the events that both led to the coming of Jesus and also led to the coming of you in terms of your embrace of the gospel. When the fullness of time has come, it says God sent forth his son. So here we have God on a mission. It's fascinating to me. It's not just that God rescues people, but that he sends them his son. Friends, there are so many implications of this. I've already mentioned a few, but let me highlight a few more. When you hear this, you should not just hear, Jesus was born. You ought to hear, Jesus entered my mess. Jesus entered my humanity. He came into my world. And I think that we will not fully understand the beauty and the trauma of this until we see the beauty and the glory of God and to realize what Jesus left in order to come and rescue us. So you should rejoice at how intentionally and sacrificially God worked to reach you. Can I give you a challenge this week? Just take some time, some driving along. Think, just t- think of the story of how you came to faith in Christ and realize that every single one of those things, God was at work in. And can you just take a moment this weekend to thank God for that person or that moment or that situation or maybe that pain or difficulty that awakened your heart? You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
You should marvel at the fact that even now God's in the process of wooing you to himself. The fact that you're here today and we're talking about this, that's not by mistake or accident. Even the pains in your life, the difficulties, the things that are making you go, you know, I don't think that my life's on the right path anymore. Even those things are all part of God's providential plan. And could it be, friend, that God's in the process of helping you to maybe consider if it's time to let go of you trying to run your own life and have another person, namely Jesus, take control? And finally, you should take comfort in the fact that you have a Savior who understands and knows what it's like to live in this broken world. A Savior who hears and understands your prayers. So if you've prayed something really hard or tear-filled this week, and you feel like there's a ceiling between you and God, uh, and you wonder, God, do you really understand? You need to know that this is the season that we celebrate. Absolutely, he understands. He knows what it's like to look into a grave and weep. He knows what it's like to see religious hypocrisy and think it's disgusting. He knows what it's like to be disappointed with friends. He knows what it's like to say, can't you just pray with me and come back and find really close brothers absolutely asleep? Jesus knows what it's like to live in our world. And so when you pray this week and you cry out to him, just be reminded that Jesus' humanity made it possible for him to not only understand, but for you to understand that he understands. And that ought to motivate you to pray even more. Jesus entered my world. Here's the second thing. Jesus saved my life. So the second reason the incarnation matters, not only because Jesus entered my world, but secondly because Jesus saved my life. Look at verse five. Here's the purpose of him being sent into the world. It's summarized in this short little, this, um, this half of the sentence. To redeem those who were under the law. Phrase. That was the word I was looking for. To redeem those who were under the law. Some of you could have just said it. Phrase, Mark. It's phrase. That's what I say phrase. Okay? Thank you. I mean, why didn't you help me? That should be the question. So, to redeem those who were under the law. What does it mean to redeem? We sing it. So familiar, you know what it means? It's, it's a word that has a rich biblical history to it and it is loaded with importance. It simply means to deliver something from evil, to, to rescue something from harm, or to buy something back. In this case, it is the way in which a slave could be purchased out of his slavery. Now, verse five makes it clear that this redemption is necessary because of the problem of the law. And so, often the Bible uses common language with the law and with slavery. It's, it's the best sort of language that Paul can, can come up with in order to help us understand both the bondage, the heavy yoke, and the impossibility of getting out, so to speak, on your own. Romans chapter six tells us that the law brings judgment to human beings, it brings condemnation, brings a curse, brings a heavy burden of hopelessness, it brings death. It's just the law constantly reminds us that we're, we're not the way that we should be. And although sometimes we know this inside of ourselves, but when you read the law and you see the law and you hear the law, then you know, oh, yep, that's, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. And so as a result, it brings this, this heaviness. And, and what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus aims to redeem us 
from underneath that law. The glorious news of the gospel is that while Jesus comes, he comes to deliver us out of the spiritual deadness of our slavery. The Bible describes human beings apart from Christ as walking dead people. I mean, they're alive physically, but internally, they're dead. And the effect of that is, is that we can do nothing to rescue ourselves. You can't do enough works to get yourself out of this dominion of the law. Instead, the Bible tells us that Jesus comes to rescue us, to save our lives, to redeem us, to deliver us from the slave market of our own sinfulness. So, in the ancient Near East, and particularly in the Greco-Roman era, there was a, a way in which the redemption of slaves happened. In fact, there's a city in Greece called Delphi, and there's a treasure trove in that city of archaeological inscriptions that describe the process by which a slave was redeemed. Here's how it went. If a slave could secure enough money on his or her own, he or she could buy their freedom. Or if somebody else could collect enough money, they could buy that particular slave's freedom. And it was a substantial amount of money. But just to pay the money, there needed to be something more, some sort of legal or spiritual or divine connection that this person had been transferred from being a slave to now being a free man. So money was not a significant enough thing. True, it, it, it made the process happen, but it needed to be more, something legal, something official, something even spiritual. And so in the city of Delphi, what we find are inscriptions that would indicate the name of the slave, the amount that was paid, and then there was always a connection between the slave being delivered and the payment that was made to the god, usually Apollos or Apollo. So the idea is that the god would look down and would see the transaction that was taking place or would receive that payment and thereby validate the freedom that was purchased on the part of this slave, whether it was purchased for him or her or whether or not he or she purchased it. So the idea is there's this purchase agreement that's going down on earth and a God up above looks at it and says, yeah, that's right. Enter the good news of the gospel and here's what happens. We have a purchase of redemption, but it's God himself who comes and makes the payment and the payment that he makes is God himself. It's not just that he lays money on the table, he lays his son on the cross. It's not that God stands at a distance. No, God goes to those people and his own son lays down his life in order for those people to be redeemed. And so our redemption is such that we've not just been brought out of the slave market of our own sinfulness, but it is that God himself, through Jesus, saved our lives. The effect is that God does everything in that redemption by becoming a curse for us. He owns our own curse. He even becomes sin for us. The Son of God becomes sin. Two texts that make this clear, Galatians 3.10 and 13. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then notice this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Don't miss these next few words. By becoming a curse for us. That's unbelievable. 
The Son of God became a curse. He didn't just see it from a distance, he became the curse. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The Son of God doesn't just pay for your sin, the Son of God becomes sin. Jesus made our doom his doom. He rescued us, redeemed us, bought us, saved us, delivered us, he paid our ransom. And listen friends, the beautiful reality of Christmas is this reminder that Jesus delivers people from the deadness and the bondage of their own sinfulness. Here's what I want you to do sometime this week. I just want you to think for a few moments, just take 30 seconds, sometime this week while you're driving, get your first cup of coffee tomorrow morning, just think of this. Where would you be today if it wasn't for the rescue of Christ? Think where you'd be going. Think you'd still have a marriage? What kind of parent would you be? Would you even understand forgiveness? Would you know how to be able to love in a way that Christ loved you? How about your career? The, 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 the friends that you have, the relationships that, that, that you have. Think where you would be without the redemption that you have in Christ. See, the challenge is, is that we get so used to, so familiar with, so intoxicated with the normal pattern of life that we forget without his grace, without his mercy, there's nothing that I'd have. You know, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that the purpose of Jesus' birth, the purpose of him coming was to set in motion the deliverance of people like you and me who were destroying our own lives. The Bible tells us that sin is a my own personal rebellious act against God where I try and do things my own way, but here's the crazy thing is that in trying to do that my own way, I end up self-destructing my own life. And you may be here, not yet a follower of Jesus, and had this thought run through your mind, what's wrong with me? Keep blowing up relationships? Keep hurting people around me? Or maybe it's, it's like this, you're a follower of Jesus, and it isn't that you've, you've thought what's wrong with me, You've, you've climbed the top of the corporate ladder and you're still incredibly miserable. Or you thought, this particular substance, that will give me what I wanted, and you've found that, well, as one early church father said it this way, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless till they find our rest in him. And I just would hope and pray that today you'd cross the line and say, you know, I'm, I'm done with trying to run my own life. I need, I need something, I need Jesus to take over Jesus redeems us from the bondage of our own self-destruction. We sing it this way, O come, O come, Emmanuel, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. There it is. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death, dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Listen, the Christmas season is a time for the followers of Jesus to celebrate the one who saved our lives. 
Listen, can you just think this thought with me? Jesus saved you from you. He saved you from you. He bought you out of the slavery of your own making under the bondage of the law, trying to keep a standard that you could never possibly keep, and Jesus rescued you by becoming like you and entering into your world. He was born so that you could be born again. Finally, the third reason why this matters is because Jesus changed my identity. Look in verse five, the second phrase, says, so that, that's a, those words are really important. When you see them in the Bible, so that, it means that what's coming is an implication of what was just said. So whatever happened previously, so that, this now is gonna be brought to bear, and then look at verse six, and because you are, and then verse seven, so you are. So you see what Paul's doing? He's saying because of this redemption, there are implications. There are, and, and what happens is that God has changed your identity. Well, how has he changed your identity? Well, the first thing he does is he changes our identity by adopting us. Verse five, again, so we might receive adoption as sons. So the redemption of Jesus whereby he calls us to place our trust in him, not only means that we're bought out of the slave market, but it also means that we're welcomed as a son. So in the Greco-Roman world, if you were delivered out of slavery, you just became a free free man. So the opposite of a slave was a free man. But in the Bible, spiritually, the opposite is, that of a slave is not just a free man, the opposite of a slave is actually a son, and that is even more scandalous. Be glorious enough if you were just given your freedom, but when a person comes to Christ, they have a change of identity that once they were a slave, and now they are a son, and all throughout the Bible, God uses this idea of adoption to describe the way in which he has reached out to us. Ephesians chapter one and verse five tells us that God's electing love involves adoption, where he makes you his son. Romans eight twenty three, our adoption reaches its fulfillment ultimately in the resurrection, and this idea of adoption has its roots in the relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament. He adopted Abraham. He adopts the people of Israel. And he adopts them out of the land of Egypt. In the same way, believers in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, have been brought into the family of God. They have been delivered not only from the bondage of the law and from sin, but they have become the sons of God, such that we become the children of God. We become the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and according to Hebrews chapter three, we become the brothers and sisters of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother. That's crazy. That we would be in heaven and Jesus would put his arm around us and say, I'm not ashamed to be called. These are the people to whom I belong. I mean, the angels must just look at that and go, what in the world? Like, these are your brothers? You're the son of God. And Jesus did that in order to redeem us. Text goes on. 
receive the adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into, your, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the second change in identity comes by the mark of the spirit, or by the presence of the spirit, and the sending of the personal presence of the spirit in order to mediate the presence of Christ. Now, affirms that we indeed are the children of God. Look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter eight. Notice a similar language. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And notice this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the spirit of Jesus comes to give us things like conviction of sin, helps you when you read the Bible or you hear a sermon. You're like, yes, that's true, I love that. That didn't come from you. That's the spirit of God working in you. Your heart prior to Jesus would have heard this and said, this is a dumb thing to do all morning. Why am I doing this? Go home, watch TV, something else, maybe Rudolph the Rendell's Reindeer's on again, I can watch that. I mean, there's no reason for you to be here listening to, to, to all of this stuff, unless there's something in this that in your heart goes, I believe that, like that's true. Like straight up, that happened to me. Like I, like I believe that. You know where that comes from? The Spirit of God in you, and when that happens, it confirms that indeed you really are a child of God. It affirms that you really, truly have been changed. The text goes on and it says, by, where, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is a very personal term. It's the kind of term that Jesus used in Mark 14 when he was agonizing in prayer. Same words that Jesus used when he addressed his Father. So, I mean, the same kind of relationship that Jesus has with his father when he's in pain, you can have with, Jesus, with, with your father in heaven when you're in pain. So Abba, it's, it's like daddy in our own language. It indicates some kind of special and personal relationship. This is why, why dads will work their tails off to try and get their kids, the very first words they say, to be dada, right? And they say, say, dada, 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 or say mama. So those words are... They indicate closeness of relationship. You'd think it odd if a child's first words were something else. I mean, it's normal that they would say dada, right? Imagine some child, and like their first words were, Tom Brady. You know, what would you think? <laughs> right? You'd be like, first of all, it's wrong. Like, right? <laughs> Second of all, it's weird. Somebody asked me for service, why'd you choose that name? I don't know, I just chose it, so anyway, so. <laughs> you say dada because it indicates relationship, personal connection. Listen, friends, anytime you pray and seek the heart of the Father, anytime you pour your heart out to God, just remember that the relationship that you have and the welcoming presence that the Father offers to you, they are borne along by the Spirit and they're only possible because of the incarnation. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, those words bought by the incarnation of Jesus. Maybe this week while you're closing up a prayer, you could just pray something like this, and Lord Jesus, I thank you that everything I prayed today is only possible because you came. You came. You showed up, and you became a man. And I pray this in your name. Amen.
And then finally, we are heirs. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. To be an heir means two wonderful things. First, it means this. Every honor, every blessing given to Christ is given to those who are the children of God. You understand that like this much. When you get to heaven, you have an earth, you're gonna understand the, the extent of what that means. In short, what that means is this. The most valuable thing in the entire universe is the glory of God. Sin is falling short of that glory. And 1 Peter chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1, or verse 4 rather, tells us that we have become partakers of that divine nature, that glory, because of the work of Christ. And so since God's glory is the most valuable reality in the entire universe, we receive this amazing inheritance, namely that the glory of Christ becomes our glory. His exaltation becomes our exaltation. His victory becomes our victory. And all of this takes place only because of him. We went from having no hope and having no future and having no freedom to receiving the greatest treasure in the universe, namely the glory of God, and having been spared from the scariest reality in the universe, namely the wrath of God. And the intersection of that, where did that happen? It all started in the incarnation of Jesus. The only reason we have this glorious inheritance is because Jesus came and because he rescued. And friends, that's what we celebrate this time of year. Christmas is the incarnation, or the intersection, rather, between my hopelessness and God's mercy. The incarnation is the place where Jesus meets us in order to rescue us from our own sinfulness. So I hope that this season of year is so much more for you than just family, festivities, special gatherings, and especially Christmas specials on the TV. Please don't allow the familiarity of this season to drown out the enormous significance of what happened when that little baby in a manger entered our world. That baby, he saved our lives. He changed who you are. And so therefore, this ought to be a time of year where we respond and say to him regularly, you were pleased to dwell. And because of that, I'm gonna dwell with God forever. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take these familiar truths and push them into the hearts of people whose lives are filled with chaos and difficulty today. Would you remind them that you are in this moment a faithful high priest who can understand, who's ready to 
intercede for them and you understand what it means to live in the world in which we lived. Oh Lord, I pray as well for believers who know these truths that somehow this week they need to be more evident, more poignant. And so would you push us towards regular gratitude and then would you also, Lord, push us towards people who you're asking us to be Jesus too, who we need to enter into their pain, enter into the mess, and incarnate the person and work of Jesus in our own way. So help us to put flesh on the gospel in the same way that Jesus did. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.